we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Luke, I invite you to turn in that uh, book with me to the 8th chapter. We'll begin our reading at verse 4. Now, one of the great challenges to uh, consecutive preaching is uh, that is making our way through books of the Bible, paragraph by paragraph, through entire books, is, is choosing where to begin a text and, um, and where to end it. Now, sometimes it's obvious. Uh, other times, like this week, the choice is uh, a little more nuanced. One looks for um, example for a unifying theme that uh, draws a certain number of verses together to form a, a unit. Sometimes that even involves trying to discern the author's you know, original intent in arranging the material the way that he uh, so carefully does. In this chapter, there seems to be a theme that runs all the way from verse 4 through verse 21. But that presents a dilemma. Uh, There is so much material here. The the parable, the interpretation of the parable, the comment about parables, the further application of the parable, and then I think an illustration of the parable. Um, So much so that uh, we're not going to be able to cover it all this morning. So after I've wrestled with this matter, what I've decided to do is this. Rather than trying to break down the passage, because it is so thematically unified, we'll read the entire passage this week and next, and uh, deliver two messages on that same passage. Call them parts if you like, and those of you who follow such things closely would uh, rename this morning's sermon. Uh, Consider carefully how you listen. Part one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we do pray that we will listen, that you will open our ears to hear and to receive your truths deeply within ourselves, and not merely to be hearers only, but doers of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 8, beginning at verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see. And hearing, they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. 
And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus, at this point in the narrative, is becoming a particularly popular preacher. People are coming from surrounding towns now to hear him speak and to preach his remarkable sermons. Remember, this was before television, before you could turn on a switch on a box and hear people and see them literally from the other side of the world. If you wanted to hear a famous speaker, you had either to go to that speaker or wait for that speaker to come around to you. So people were beginning to throng around him from far and near. And he was a good preacher, of course. Uh, For good reason, he was a popular preacher. But with popularity... Jesus understood, came people who were not nearly as sincere, not really interested in being shaped and formed and molded and directed by what they heard. They came for the sake of hearing, with no intention really of listening or applying what they had heard. Jesus, with his insightful understanding of the human nature, knew that many would come and hear only on a superficial level. Their adherence to what they heard would only be skin deep if that, and therefore he began at this point in his ministry to use more and more parables. As one of my commentaries puts it, he intensified his use of parables, stories which yielded their meaning only to those who were prepared to search for them. The parables demand thought and spiritual earnestness. They separate the sincere seeker from the casual hearer. Now the interesting thing about this parable is that it is itself a description of that very separation that parables make between sincere seekers and simple simple casual hearers of the word. And to drive home the point, Jesus uses an illustration to which every one of his hearers can relate. The farmer sowing his seed. And even more to the point, the kinds of soil in which those seeds found place. Now, most of us are not, as quite, not quite as familiar with the uh, 
agricultural aspects of his parable. For one thing, I'd venture to guess that most of us find our vegetables in the produce section uh, at the grocery store. Uh, Our grains already nicely processed and baked into uh, bread and things like that. We don't live, most of us don't live nearly as closely to the earth as our uh, ancestors, even our mothers and fathers and grandparents did. What is more, even modern farmers don't ply their agricultural trade in nearly the same way that uh, farmers did in Jesus' day. Now, farmers still use seed, and that much has not changed. But even that, highly en- engineered, hybrid for maximum yield. And you'll not find any farmers, I don't guess you will, I can't imagine you would, in Davis County or Ohio County or Spencer or Henderson or Warwick, uh, sowing seed the way that Jesus saw farmers sowing seed all his life uh, from his infancy. You need only stop by Mr. Bice's office out there on Route 431 sometime and take a a brief tour of the facility to find that modern farmers don't scatter their seed. They use very carefully calibrated knives and blades and insert the seed at a very specific depth in the ground. I'm sorry, in the soil. (laughs) In the soil, they plant their seeds. And, uh, and use other things, you can ask Mr. Bice the name of those uh, things, to close the furrow in the soil over the seeds uh, in modern uh, sowing techniques. Every seed is carefully and precisely planted for productivity with thought given to seed vigor and heat and wind forecasts and so on. Global positioning technologies uh, guide the farmers so that they're actually reading you know, graphs and, and electronic sh- charts in their air-conditioning, uh, air-conditioned tractor cabs, uh, guided by satellites orbiting the earth. You know, and things have changed. Several weeks ago, I was um, driving down road here in the county and saw a farmer actually standing in the field next to his idling tractor, bending over and touching the soil with his hands. And it, it struck me as remarkable because it seems so seldom anymore you actually see a, a farmer in the field with his hands in the soil. Well, in Jesus' day and place, planting was done by a farmer on his feet walking through a field with a bag of seed slung over his shoulder and rhythmically reaching into the bag and casting that seed uh, to plant it along the way. Uh, Some disagreement among the scholars of whether they plowed first and then scattered seeds or scattered seeds and then plowed them in, but it hardly matters uh, to us this morning. Jesus, with his eye for detail... And the ability to see kingdom principles, even in earthly actions. He watched the farmers closely. He loved watching the farmers as a child. And even into his manhood. He walked by the plowman and the sower and the reaper. By the Spirit of God at work in him, he came to understand the similarities between the farmer's work and the principles of the kingdom of God. It's not difficult to imagine... Uh, Even that day, Jesus and his disciples, having made their way through the fields and past the farmers sowing their seed, that 
very day, during the planting season. He and the twelve and the women who are with them may have even themselves uh, trampled some of that seed on the path, and followed by hungry birds that came swooping in and scooped up that seed from the hardened paths that they had just followed recently on their way here to the seaside. Nor had the challenges and successes of the farmers of his day, the exasperation and the elation of those who made their living as sowers, husbandmen, reapers of a crop. I said that hadn't escaped his notice either. What he observed, he applied by the way of analogy. In this case, and particularly of analogy, be careful and mindful of this, uh, dear flock. Not all parables are interpreted as this one. Not all parables are analogies. We make big mistakes if we interpret all the parables as analogies. Uh, Applied, I say, in this case, though, in the form of an analogy of the kingdom of God. Now, it's not so much the sower himself, even though we call it the parable of the sower. Uh, Not so much the sower that interests Jesus, but the soil. Just as the seed of the farmer fell on different kinds of soil, uh, so the word of God that Jesus preached, and that is still preached and proclaimed today by his servants, falls on different kinds of soil. And the crowds that gathered around Jesus, as in the world today, and even in the church, there are hearers who receive the word, but only in a shallow way. Those who receive it deeply and to great effect, and those on whom it falls, but who do not receive it at all. As we listen, Jesus intends that we should ask ourselves now, and pause and say this, so we get this before we start in now. What kind of soil am I? What effect does the word of God have on me? You listen closely and find yourself in one of these. First, Jesus says in verse 5, Some seed falls along the path and is trampled underfoot, and the birds devour it. He explains in verses 11 and 12 that the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. It was a common experience of farmers in those days that some of their seed would fall on those footpaths that either bordered the fields or in some cases went right through the field. The ground was hard, it was unyielding, it was impervious to the seed. And almost as quickly as the seed hit those places, uh, hungry birds would swoop down and, and snatch that seed up. And that's what happens when the word falls on a hardened sinner. It does not penetrate, it doesn't sink in, it bounces right off. It never takes hold of the conscience, it never sets root. And this happens every day. People around us hear the word on the radio, they hear it at funerals, they hear it at church services, at weddings, even hopefully they hear it from you. It's not that the word has not reached their ears, nor is there something lacking in the word itself, as if the word somehow has failed. They simply won't have it. They are hardened, they're proud maybe. 
too proud to receive the word of God that tells them that they are desperately needy sinners. Unwilling to accept that evaluation of themselves, that they are helpless apart from God's grace. They're hardened by their sin, maybe. They, they simply love their sin too much to relinquish their, their favorite iniquities. They know the word obeyed and applied would require them to repent, require them to give up this, this sinful pleasure that they enjoy, and they're simply not willing to do it. Prefer the chains of their sin to, to the word of God. Maybe some bitter experiences in life have hardened them. Whatever it is, they simply will not receive the word, no matter how many times it falls on them. What is more, there is a personal, and I mean that, there's a personal enemy involved here. Jesus says the devil himself has interest in snatching the word away. He doesn't want anyone thinking too long or too hard about the word, lest, verse 12, they should believe and be saved. He hates that. He hates that most of all. He knows that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, so he does everything in his power to prevent it. He does this, oh yes, he does this in the pews of churches, or in rows of chairs, as the case may be. Bishop Ryle goes so far as to say that nowhere does he labor so hard to stop the progress of that which is good and to prevent men and women from being saved. From him come wandering thoughts, roving imaginations, listless minds and dull memories, sleepy eyes, fidgety nerves, weary ears, and distracted attention. In all these things, Satan has a great hand. People wonder where these things come from and marvel how it is that they find sermons so dull and remember them so poorly. They forget the parable of the sower. They forget the devil. Don't forget the devil, dear flock. Don't forget the devil. He, he never wants you to hear the word. He always wants you tired or distracted. He'd rather you didn't receive it at all. But if you must, he'll have you receive it indifferently. It's a real battle. We've seen this. When Debbie and I visited another church during our vacation uh, a few weeks ago, we sat next to a young lady in this church who... I am almost certain, is this very kind of soil. During the entire worship service, but especially during the sermon, she could not sit still, and I mean not for one second, snapping her gum, playing with her shoes, picking at her skin, shaking her leg, sometimes madly tugging at her hair and then at her skirt, Digging in her purse was all like watching this tug of war being fought on the ground of her soul. And the devil was winning. I doubt very much that this 
poor young woman heard a word of the entire sermon. You know some of those distractions of which I speak. Don't forget the devil. A second kind of soil on which the seed of God's word falls, Jesus describes in verse 6 and then interprets in 13. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. He explains the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. This was also a problem for the Palestinian farmer. Some soil in Palestine is so shallow, but an inch or two of it covers bedrock. Oftentimes, what's planted grows up with great speed. But then comes the heat. The sun rises and beats upon that plant, and because there's no root growing underneath, though it lived, even thrived, for a little while, it dies. We see a lot of that kind of faith, don't we, in America today? A whole lot of it. Lots and lots of it. People making decisions, sometimes it's called, for Christ. In the common parlance, they they walk an aisle, they pray a prayer. And they may start out even with such excitement. They're exhilarated about their newfound faith. Uh, You've talked to these kind of people. So have I. They were excited, and you were excited with them. You've had this experience. But then as soon as the hardships set in and difficulties, they wither. Now, there's nothing wrong with being excited. Of course not. Coming to Christ, you know, having a new perspective on all of life and all creation, that's an exciting thing. But emotion is not enough. What is needed is a firm grasp on Christ, on his life, on his death, his resurrection. What is needed is an understanding of the life to which Jesus calls us. One of joy, yes, unspeakable joy, but also of suffering, of trials and difficulties and work. Take up Your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Faith must be based not on feelings, but on the Savior. Here's J.C. Ryle again. It is quite possible to feel great pleasure or deep alarm under the preaching of the gospel and yet to be utterly destitute of the grace of God. The tears of some hearers of sermons and the extravagant delight of others are no certain marks of conversion. We may be warm admirers of favorite preachers and yet remain nothing better than stony ground hearers. Nothing should content us but a deep, humbling, self-mortifying, that is, putting oneself to death, as Christ says, work of the Holy Spirit and a heart union with Christ. We have got to have a faith that goes more than two inches deep, my brothers and sisters. We simply have to. We have to set tap roots, the kind of tap roots 
that some of the things I try to pull out of our garden have set. Uh, tap roots deep in Christ. So that when the storm comes, and the wind blows, and the sun beats down on us, we'll not only survive, but thrive through those afflictions and those tests. And we set those roots in Christ not merely by brushing it up every once in a while against the Christian religion, but by setting our hope and our confidence, all of it, again and again through prayer, through the word, through the sacraments in Christ. And in his gospel. A third kind of soil Jesus names in verse 7 and interprets in verse 14. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked. Choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Last week I met, as I do a couple of times a month, with a couple of local pastor friends of mine from Philpot and Fordsville. We spend some time when we get together discussing an issue or two in the church, and then we also spend some time in prayer for each other's families, for our ministries, for, for you. You've got a pastor in Philpot and another in Fordsville praying uh, for you, by the way, and others too. In the Lord's kind providence, our discussion last Monday uh, focused on blind spots. So easily we, we look back on the church's history and we can look back at what the church did here and here and here and we can say, well, they, had, they were blind to this and they made this mistake and didn't even know they were making it and so on. And I teased one of my brothers uh, in the office here. I said to him, I wonder what blind spots you have. And he said back, well, I don't know. I can't see them. <laughs> so we tried our best to sort of rise above ourselves as best we could, by asking ourselves, what will the church 100 years from now, 200 years from now, looking back on us, what will they say about us? What, what about our blind spots? The other pastor said that it seemed to him certainly that the church of the future would say of us that we did not cultivate a deep and abiding godliness because we spent entirely too much time watching television. Well, I think he's right, dear flock. And not just television. We are, we are literally consumed these days in ways that we could not be just a decade or two ago. In fact, wouldn't dream of being. I'm speaking of electronics. There is now rising among us a generation of people who have never known a day, can't remember the day when there was not a cell phone in every pocket and purse, in which laptop computers were not as common virtually as laps uh, themselves. In just a matter of years, I mean, just a couple, few years. iPads, iPhones, iPad Touch, 
tweeting, texting, tweetering, instant messaging, emailing, Skyping, Facebooking, gaming have come to fill our days and nights with constant noise and commotion miles wide and an inch deep. Real relationships, genuine friendships, deep discipleship, meditation, reading, prayer, contemplating, writing. These things are being edged rapidly out of our lives by the instant and passing fancies of the moment that rob us of moment after moment after moment that accumulate into hour after hour after hour every day. Now, now hear me. I'm not saying that these things are in themselves evil. They are not. Technology is not inherently evil. It may serve us, and in many cases does, very well. What I am saying is this. If we are not careful, and I fear... As quickly as this stuff has descended upon us, we have not been. Our faith may easily be choked out, and I fear to a certain degree it already has been, by these otherwise good or perfectly indifferent things. I want you honestly to compare the amount of time, this isn't true of course for all of you, Just one example. Think about how much time many of you spend on Facebook and then compare it to the amount of face time you have each day with Jesus in prayer and in the Word. How do those two compare? Or fill in the blank. Whatever worldly care or pleasure Good things in themselves, many of them, are choking and choking and choking your faith into a corner of your life. Is Facebook bad for you? I'll let you answer that for yourself, but I will tell you this. The worst enemy of the highest is not always the lowest. And the enemy of the best is not always the worst. The worst enemy of the best, I think you will agree, is often, if not usually, not the worst, but second best. That's the worst enemy of the best. Choked by the cares, the riches, the pleasures of life, their fruit does not mature. Finally, and thankfully, a fourth kind of soil. Verse 8, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And then verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, uh, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So, so they're, they're not hardened 
to the word so that Satan can snatch up the word before they believe and are saved. Not the kind that is so shallow that it wilts right away in the face of affliction. Not so distracted by even good things as to be choked off with, with uh, pleasures or troubles of life. This kind, the word finds a deep root in. I mean, this soil, the word, finds a deep root in. This soil is the soil of faith that reads the word, a faith that, that hears the word, that hears the voice of God in the word, that strives to listen, to hear the voice of God when the word of God is being preached. A faith that believes the word, strives to put the word into practice, trusts the one whose word it is for salvation and for life and for everything else. This faith genuinely desires to grow in the Lord. Planted in that kind of heart, the word of God bears a harvest of righteousness. Luke just, he doesn't go the path of the other gospel writers and talk about 30 and 40 and 100. He just cuts right to the chase. A hundredfold, Luke says. He's the highest bidder of the gospels. You know, a hundredfold it yields in the heart, in the soil of such a life as that. That's the kind of heart that I want. That's the kind of soil that I want to be. And I'm confident, in your case, my brothers and sisters, that's the kind of soil you want to be, too. God will have his harvest in us. God will have his hundredfold in us. And he will have it in the world, too. So you, brothers and sisters, you keep sowing, too. You keep casting the seed. You keep telling others the word of God. I know you're discouraged. I know you've told others about Jesus. You've told them about the word of God and you've found the seeds snatched up by Satan or you've seen plants shoot up and wither. And I know it's frustrating. Don't give up. There are four kinds of soil on which you're casting and sowing that seed. Only one of them is saved. Three of them are not. So if you have to tell four people about Jesus for every one who is saved, so be it. If you have to tell nine people to see one person saved, so be it. If you have to tell 99 people the word of God to see one saved, take heart, that one will make up for all the rest when he or she bears a hundredfold for the kingdom of God. And, my brothers and sisters, while you're sowing that seed of the word of God, be sure to hold it fast yourselves. Amen.